This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Our work is not to defeat those natural forces of like death and illness. It's to learn to live with them and to live well with them. And we can live well with every change. Because if nothing else, we can offer solace to the next person that goes through the same thing that we have. Today's guest and I share a fair bit in common, but we view it from opposite ends of the spectrum. Author Catherine May draws on nature to thrive and derive meaning in her life. She also wrote A Pandemic Baby. Her book came out just a few weeks before COVID hit while still somehow capturing the times and all our yearnings that funneled into the pandemic era. The name of this book is Wintering and it celebrates the process of resting and withdrawing in dark or fallow periods, respecting the rhythm of the cycles of nature and the natural role of winter. A season, as an Australian who runs cold naturally, I have not fully respected. And so this chat from the other end of the seasonal cycle enthralled and challenged me. Catherine writes, there are gaps in the mesh of the everyday world, and sometimes they open up and you fall through them to somewhere else, into a sad and very lonely and isolated place. The gaps may open from the loss of a loved one, a difficult childbirth, illness, the loss of a job, failure in love. I think we all know this sensation of slipping through the matrix, isolated, cast out in this somewhere else place. Catherine's wild idea, though, is to actively invite the winter in. And this is what wintering is. She says that we should be embracing what she calls deeply unfashionable things, slowing down, resting, retreating. And to switch from seeing life as linear to living it fully as a cyclical process, where we pass through light and shadow constantly. We go forward only to retreat into dark times once again. Every bit of this thesis makes profound sense. And yet our generation just didn't get the memo. We've stepped out of the cycle and it is to our detriment. While I was in the UK, I really wanted to meet up with Catherine in person after reading her book some time back and listening to her on several of my favourite podcasts. She came and met me at the headquarters of the startup We Are Eight, which is a story for another day. 
but they kindly gave us a room in the basement for our chat. So as I say, we're in the basement, so it's a little echoey, but I think the conversation will more than make up for that. Enjoy. Here we are in Bloomsbury. You've come up from Kent. I've come all the way from Australia, but we're here sitting together talking about themes that we share. We've very much got in common, but why don't we cut straight to it? And I would love you to explain wintering in your words. Oh, so it feels like a really bad day to explain wintering because it's so hot outside. But your idea of hot, and I should just explain to people, you're sort of dressed in summery gear and I am wearing a, a totally fleecy hoodie. You are, yeah. With cold I, hands. This is like the limit of my tolerance for heat. So wintering is the idea that everybody has points in their life when a metaphorical winter rolls in. So it might come because you've had a big life event, you know, like a divorce or a major sickness, mental health problems. It might come just because you're ready for a change and you're resisting it. And sometimes it's just factors way beyond your control, like a pandemic. So what I always say about it is this is not a book that says, yeah, but winters are great and you can win at them. They're always vile. And really a lot of the book is about acknowledging the vileness of that, but also seeing them as a site of transformation and a place that you can dwell in for a while and walk around in and experience and that can't be rushed um, mm. and that is always teaching you something. You talk in a way that very much reflects the themes in your book and you talk very much about how wintering is about doing deeply unfashionable things <laughs> like slowing down and letting your spare time expand mm. and getting enough sleep and resting. And you're right, in the Western world, there are things to feel awkward about, you know, to explain. Yeah. Well, they're shameful, I think. Mm. Um, they imply that you haven't got enough on. And that therefore implies that you're not useful enough or that you're not popular enough. And so it's very difficult to be underoccupied in this current world and to admit to that and to actually relish it and not to have very much to do. We like to think that we can manage that really well, but in actual fact, we find that very, very challenging. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because it was only a couple of hundred years ago that being languid was a status symbol, <laughs> yes, you know, yeah. how much things have changed. But yeah, you also write about how we often come to wintering when we're forced into it, like you say, through illness or bereavement or a loss of a job or some sort. That was very much your story, wasn't it? Could you just give a little bit of an overview of how you came to understand, truly understand wintering? Definitely. So, I mean, it was really like a, a whole clashing of different things happening at once. I'd already handed in my notice for my academic job when everything kicked off. Like I'd realised that I couldn't sustain that level of work with a three-year-old and stress. And just as I was coming to terms with that, I was supposed to be celebrating my 40th birthday and we all went out to the beach with some friends and my husband started saying, oh, I, I feel a bit ill. And over the course of that day, he developed a really serious appendicitis, which was left too long by the hospital and which became life-threatening. And I mean, he recovered from that. But as I was sitting by his bedside and, and had to really fight for his care, I began to get abdominal pain myself. And mm. at first I thought, oh, it's like sympathetic pain. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't. It was a, it turned out to be like a very serious long-term gut problem that was again, like quite life-threatening because it had become infected. 
as I was working out the notice for my job, I had to go on long-term sick leave, which felt so humiliating to me. It felt like I wasn't properly handing over Mm. my work. And it felt like I'd done it deliberately. I was worried what people would think of me. And I was put into the position of having to actively recuperate from a serious illness that had no simple or obvious treatment. Or name. Or name, absolutely. And I still haven't really got a name for it because I've actually got loads of different things, you know, that are are all terribly unglamorous and which all require constant management and vigilance. So wintering kind of took us through the process of that. But then quite suddenly, actually, we realised that our son was not coping in school and we had to take him out of school. And so it was just this trail of events really Mm. that took us all onto what felt like the outside of society. I think we all felt a bit ashamed and embarrassed and like we'd failed. We were conscious that what we were doing and our decisions looked really weird to the outside world as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that took you into a space of that, that darkness of that Mm. fallow period, as you put it, it sounds like you felt ostracized to a certain extent yeah, and you had I mean, to remove yourself. Yeah, not in any active way. Although I think we did feel ostracized from the school community who didn't want to find a solution. They just wanted my son to turn up to school and be fine and he wasn't fine and there was yeah. no way of mediating between those two places. But the ostracism is more subtle than that. It, it's about those moments when you can't fit into everyone else's life. Like you don't have the energy, you're emotionally all over the place. You don't want to explain yourself another time. There's so many things at once. and you're Or grieving. even handle other people's um, reactions to you. Yes. The management of other people's emotions oh, when you're going so through a hard. dark time like that. Yeah. And you haven't made your story for it yet. Like you haven't found a way to tell it yet. And so in many ways, it's still unspeakable and you're raw and you're angry and you can't really say anything that's that socially acceptable. Yeah. (laughs) And it's interesting because I'd already got the contract to write the book about wintering before those things happened. That's the great joke of all of this. Like I was going to look back on previous wintering times and write about that. Yeah. And I I kept getting delayed by all this stuff happening. And there was a point when I realized that I just had to write the book anyway to fulfill my contract. But there was a benefit to that because I caught things in there that I'd have forgotten as soon as that period was over, like little moods and moments and and like the, the paranoia and the regret and all of those things that you disappear. Well, you had a great through line, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. 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 Although, I mean, obviously like I was really conscious as I handed the book in that everything was quite unresolved actually, but I didn't mind that. Well, I think we'll get to some of the unresolved ongoing cyclical nature of Mm. all of this in a moment, but you do also broaden out what is a very individual experience to a societal level, that society also goes through these dark times. We are very much a summer culture. We're very summery, especially in the last, well, 50 years, 100 years. You have a line, we live in an overlit age. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I think I mean two things. I mean, I think I mean that metaphorically in that we are only interested in light and talking about light, the light side of things, about happiness, about Mm. achievement, about not grieving, about not 
regretting about not feeling pain. But at the same time, I was also talking about the literal use of electric light to push back winter. And one of the things I argue in the book is that we have developed the technology now that we can pretend winter isn't happening. You know, we can go into our houses and have the heating on and have the lights on and actually avoid going outside if we need to. I mean, we can get straight into our cars from our garages and straight into shopping centers and order stuff online rather than like leaving the house. And we don't have to engage with winter anymore. And that's not the benefit we think it is because we lose our sense of seasonality. We lose our sense of movement throughout the year and the sense of that cycle happening. But there's also like quite a few biological processes that rely on us come into contact with cold and with darkness that affect every part of our body. And we are denying our bodies that, that rhythm that they've evolved to meet. Yeah. And also when we do do them, because of course the world's caught on to, you know, the Wim Hof movement, you know, and the cold baths and all of that yeah. kind of thing, but it's out of the context of the natural rhythms of life. I see so many parallels with the stuff that you write about in your book with so many other things that we're doing. Like we do friendship and social connection via social media and we leave out the hard bits, the gristy bit that oh, actually yeah. produces the real rewards. We, we do sex via porn, which again leaves out the sweatiness and the yeah. awkwardness and the, the gross and the fumbles. Yeah. yeah. Which are kind of part of the bonding that happens in sex, actually. The fact that it is a bit gross, you know, like yeah. that's. And we forgive each other for all yeah. our awkwardnesses. It's that intimacy, right? Yeah. That's how intimacy is made. It's not from perfect, hairless, well-lubricated sex. <laughs> God, no. It's really symptomatic of a broader thing that we've been doing, and I don't know what comes first. It's the same thing. It's a thing. chicken and egg thing, actually, isn't it? It's sort of bobbing for apples, mm. and we never actually get our teeth sunk in, and we're sort of trying to dig around, and it's, you know, <laughs> and we actually never get a true bite yeah. on it all, like yeah. a juicy bite on it all. I kind of see it play out as an Australian because mm. – in Australia, we, we do winter, but it's a very short winter. We <laughs> kind of live in denial of it, at least um, in the eastern states or the coastal areas. We don't even heat or insulate our homes properly. We'll put on a jumper or a sweater or whatever it is <laughs> briefly, and, and we really just don't do winter. And, and I suppose when I first read your book, I reflected on that. Our trees are evergreen. We don't have deciduous trees, so we don't have that die-off that you have over here in the Northern Hemisphere. To a certain extent, there's this sort of forever summer attitude. Mm. And, you know, there's other places in the world like California that are much the same. And we don't invite in, to use your words, the wintering. And I'm wondering if that contributes to a cultural change I feel as an Australian, there is a sense, a, a real severe lack of reflection on serious topics. We gloss over them. It's like, she'll be right is the classic Australian saying. And there's also an anti-intellectualism as well that exists. And I suspect you could say much the same about California. Well, no, very similar here as well, actually. I mean, you know, we had a member of government last week teasing another member for going to the opera because she was working class. And it's like, that's where we are right now. Yes. Yeah. That's 
been an overlit society. Yes, that is overlit, isn't it? Mm. You know? I really reflected on that and, and the impact that it has on a country like Australia where we don't do that seasonal change. And, you know, there's aspects to it that I absolutely love. I love the dusty, sheer grit of trees that have just had to hold on and hold on and they disintegrate eventually into dust. It's not like they have leaves <laughs> that die off and then get renewed I, I again. I feel a bit like that tree sometimes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? There's There are metaphors to be found everywhere. And I'm sure your Indigenous people have got amazing metaphors of cyclical living that maybe don't rely so heavily on the, the sort of external seasons. I've come fresh from like a really amazing conversation with Emma Dabbery on my own podcast, where we were thinking about equatorial countries that have no seasons. And she'd lived in Ghana for six months, whereas I was like, I am fascinated to know what that's like. Like I, whenever I meet someone that's lived in an equatorial country, I always ask them because it feels to me like those people recognize micro seasons in a way that we don't. Like I think they're looking for much smaller signs, much more delicate signs about change, but also that that's where ritual and culture take over that kind of impose a calendar across that very land in terms of weather year. So whereas like, you know, we in the Northern Hemisphere are really used to relying on the weather to tell us how to feel about stuff. Like yeah. I, and that is literally how my, my year goes. Other people make that for themselves and find a way to bring that light and shade in. But what we've done more recently is we've overlit everything. We've created this eternal summer and we've also erased the culture and the ritual that once guided us through that in a meaningful way too. Yeah, you talk about fairy tales and of yeah. course fairy tales are very northern hemisphere, but they often these fables first of all they always serve a purpose. Yes. They're there to tell us moral lessons, to guide us, to give us a, a moral compass. You make the point that so many of these fairy tales happen in winter and you use motifs of snow and and freezing over and that kind of thing. What were they telling us? You know, what were they trying to say about wintering back in the eras where, you know, like obviously they were important. Yeah. And they, they yeah, were developed to guide humanity. Yeah. What were they guiding humanity in? Well, I mean, I think loads of different things. And I think wintering is always, or winter is always a kind of symbol of of suffering, of austerity, of hard times. But in the book, I point out how many stories link winter with children. Narnia, the dark is rising, the wolves of Willoughby chase. Like there are so many, the box of delights, which is one of my favorites. They seem to offer this opportunity for children to take the lead and to take over from the adults who are always in these stories somehow immobilized by the snow. Stuck. Yeah, suck or just disappeared altogether, like can't reach the children because of disrupted transport or, or whatever. Or a cupboard that yeah. they've fallen down into. Yeah. And so then the young people have to take over and have to find their own strength and grit. And I think that's such an interesting insight into how we see winter. Like it yes, it is about dark times, but it's also about these moments when you come into your own, like you have to be resourceful. You have to dig deep, literally into snow. Interesting, actually, this week I was reading um, the Welsh kind of mythological cycle, the Mabinogion. Very Welsh name. Oh, <laughs> it is the most wonderful, wonderful, wonderful set of like early medieval stories. 
And in that, it's a dense fog that that takes the role of snow, that takes over the entire kingdom. And I thought, oh, there's another one. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that you can't see, you're immobilised, you're stuck and you must fight through with the knowledge, of course, and this is the thing, isn't it, about cycles, that spring will come. And that's what happens at the end of these parables. You can see exactly what they were trying to teach children back then. Absolutely. And it's it's really significant that in the Narnia Chronicles, it's an eternal winter which has removed everyone's hope. Like it's the yeah. it's the hope of that change that gets us through. But in Narnia, that hope has to be restored from the outside because it's it's been imposed. Yeah. Yeah. But again, it's yeah, it's all the same lessons, isn't it? You've got to fight for things, but don't worry, there's hope at the end. Yeah. 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 And that can sound like quite a trite lesson in a way. And I think we've made that quite trite in our culture because We've not allowed those characters to be affected in a permanent way by the changes that happen. Like we often solve everything at the end of the story. The human truth is that we're often scarred by our winters and it's not all about positive recovery. It's actually about regrouping and finding a way to live with the changes that have come rather than solving all the problems and everything's fine. And actually everything's better than it was in the first place. Like that's not the truth of it. Mm. I think we need to find a way to talk about how sometimes we don't win, but we're still okay. Yeah, that's almost like the adult version of these children's stories is that we need to have that story. And you're absolutely right. We are not used to that. The big part of being sick or being in a dark place is that you keep thinking that you should have solved it by yes. now, you yeah. know? And yeah. Well, and everyone tells you that. I don't know if that's your experience, but everyone's like, haven't you been to see the doctor? Well, you're oh, still ill. Yes. Why don't you go back to the doctor? And it's like, when you've got a chronic illness, you can't keep going back to the doctor because they'll say, yes, it is still the same problem that I told you you have. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, a chronic illness is the perfect lesson. And it's been my perfect lesson. It gives you the ultimate slap down. It renders you choiceless and you have to face these themes head on. And what do you know? That's what you and I then go off and, and write about <laughs> yeah. and speak about. But yeah, I think you also write about how a lot of rituals mm. and holidays are based around winter. Tell us a little bit about that because I should also say it made me think about Australia because we've got the other way around. Yes, of All course. our, our yeah. holidays, including our god-awful Australia Day, which celebrates <laughs> the invasion of Australia, but that's still in the summery months. Right. They're all packed to one end of the year almost. Yeah. So mm. we've got, and our big holidays are over summer. What do you have in winter then? Like what do you- Well, this is the point. You have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. And so right. there are obviously parts of Australia that have, you know, a good three to four months of winter. Even in, in the warmer states, it's a grim time mm. of year. We have to sort of get through it. The the days are short yeah. and the weather's not great. It's not part of our identity. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's yeah. not what we do. Yeah. Our houses aren't yes. built for it. And so I actually just think we're so awkwardly it? waiting it out. And yeah. yeah, it really struck me when you spoke about the rituals and the holidays. And of course, I spent some Christmases in the US and in the UK, and it's a very different experience. Yeah. And I suppose, I mean, one of the things that I would say is that it's a, you know, you've transposed a, a European, a Northern European culture into the global South. And it means that you've got nothing through the hardest times because actually the stuff we have here, there's a remarkable cluster of celebrations throughout winter. Mm. Um, and I've just been working on a new project that really 
digs into those, actually, there's a huge number of things, but particularly Christmas and New Year, they're the two ones that and we And of course, Thanksgiving in the US. Yes, and Thanksgiving in the US, which... Um, which and Halloween. Can, Halloween and Thanksgiving. But Thanksgiving is really interesting because you can trace that back to Roman times, actually, in its place in the calendar, if you look really closely. So it's much more ancient than it mm. that perhaps appears. I mean, what those things do is they give us these, these kind of beats to follow through the darkest times of the year. And in the traditional pagan calendar, that would have been very much regular right the way through. Um, I think you said every six weeks? Every six to eight right? weeks, yeah. yeah. Um, which I've started following in a in a very light way now, just noticing when they come up. And it makes a huge change, actually, once you start following that pattern and just pausing at every solstice and equinox and the point directly in between. There's something about that that gives you hope because it offers a rhythm, like those times when the year feels like it's stretching so far, everything feels endless, everything feels like a drudge. That's when you start thinking, okay, well, in two weeks' time, it's this moment in the year. Maybe I can celebrate that. Maybe I can mark that. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. How do you celebrate or mark those sort of uh, Oh, I've got a lot of ways now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, quite often um, I'll get together with friends and and swim at sunset or sunrise because I live by the sea. I like to light a bonfire or maybe invite people around for a meal. Like it doesn't have to be, I think people think that ritual has to be weird somehow. Like you have to, I don't know. Dress it really is just something and, to look forward to and then to yeah, come together over, really. I mean, I might light a candle and, yeah. and spend a couple of moments thinking about it. I have started a new, a relatively new one for me where I get together with a friend and, and we've discovered this ancient healing well near us because I live near Canterbury, big pilgrimage site. It used to be thought to cure leprosy, but it's still there. It's this beautiful 14th century. Does anyone have leprosy nearby? Well, no, not that I know of. Works then. But we, we <laughs> go and visit the well at the solstices and equinoxes now and we dress it. So we garland it with flowers and it's a really beautiful thing to do, to spend time with this kind of ancient monument that everybody's forgotten and to make it really beautiful. And it's the process that's the thing. Like we get together, we chat, we arrange flowers around it. 
And then we go to the pub and, and have, you know, a mm. half afterwards. And it's not a ritual in the sense that I ever thought a ritual would be. You know, mm. there's no words chanted. There's no gods invoked. You know, there's nothing beyond the ordinary act of taking care of, of the world around us. Yeah, that's a lovely phrase, the ordinary act of taking care. Yeah, and yeah. which is deeply feminine, you know. It it's is. A, it's, a, it's a lovely way to honour the way that we like to be in the world specifically as well, which is to look after something. And to also have these moments of stillness mm. to reflect, you know, to be able to pulse, yeah. to reflect and then go back into the world. Yeah. And I think that that's something that's seriously lacking and very much what yeah. I took from wintering, the process of wintering. But I think one of the most powerful bits, and this is sort of the wild idea that I really centred on with, with yeah. your work, <laughs> is the idea of uh, you've described being human as being cyclical as opposed to sort of linear. Mm. And I initially was going to get you to read this out, but the palaver of spinning my computer around is a bit of a problem, so I'm just going to read it out myself. But this is this is from Catherine's book. Wintering is a time of withdrawing from the world, maximising scant resources, carrying out acts of brutal efficiency and vanishing from sight, but that's where the transformation occurs. Winter is not the death of the life cycle, but it's crucible. Lovely words. It's funny, isn't it? I guess hearing your own words back at yeah, you. Yeah, it's always weird, yeah. Them. Yeah, I think, oh, did I write that? Okay, good. Yeah, that's quite <laughs> the sentence. Yeah, right. Don't know where that came from. Um, but, yes, explain this idea of the cycles and how important that is and why wintering is the crucible. So we are cyclical beings in loads of different ways, and we've got used to thinking ourselves as something that moves from birth to death in a straight line. The really toxic thing about that is we think of that line as like striving upwards and then maybe falling off when we die. And that's actually a denial of how life feels. Like we move in all kinds of different circles. Some of those will be emotional circles. You know, we have happier periods and sadder periods. Yes. Some of those will be cycles of fertility. Some of those will be cycles of learning. Energy is certainly very, very true. Wellness and unwellness. There are so many different ways that we go around and around and we repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And we learn a little more every time. Like we can't help but repeat those mistakes because that's the way that life drives us. That's not our problem. That's not our fault, but it is our experience. The graph that we live never was a straight line. It's always been a very, very wobbly one that probably goes backwards sometimes. And you know this when you like, when you bring up a child and you think about the way we talk about child development now, which is like building block on building block. And actually they go backwards and forwards, yeah. you know, they regress a bit sometimes. They kind of <laughs> oh, so much of my life is two steps forward, one and three quarter mm. steps backwards because I haven't really nailed the lesson yet, Yeah, which is what you yeah. can actually learn as you get older. Hindsight enables you to see, oh, yes, every time I go backwards it's yeah. because <laughs> I need to do that cycle again. The yeah. implications of that, I mean, I was really struck by that. I, I work in a very linear fashion. I'm, I'm an A type, so I'm going up that hill, climbing yeah. up that hill. But it struck me as so comforting, yeah. as such a relief to know that spring will come and, and, and winter will come again as well. And it, I mean, if you think about the kind of the Celtic conception of what winter is, they saw it as this gestational period of the year, this time when you know, in the opposite direction to summer when you were kind of building and making and doing new things. 
when you like almost sat on your ideas like a clutch of eggs and brooded over them and reflected and refined and thought things through a little bit before you go striding out into the world again. And that's a beautiful cycle to be in. Like I, I do wonder if life isn't so painful because we're not giving ourselves time to contemplate and reflect and to to really integrate the lessons we're being shown. Like we we don't have a moment to do that. We just keep doing. Well, if I was, yeah, if I was to sum up the troubles of our times and of which there are many, it really is about a lack of deep reflection. We're careering ahead with all this AI technology and biotech and metaverses and heading off to Mars. And yet nobody, as far as I can tell, has sat down and gone, hey, is this what humanity really wants? Why are we doing this? Yes. Is this going to make us happy? Is this going to end in abject disaster? Is this going to cause horrible misery and despair at some point? Nobody is having that discussion. We're summering, let's build and explode. and, And we're not having those moments of, okay, let's settle into this and see where it sits, which is throughout history, technological advances had that. You know, there was the well, necessarily because it was built into the process. Like everything was a bit slower. It took longer to send a letter. It took longer to travel. Like you had to. There were fellow periods. Yeah, you had, had, to, had to have a think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, funny enough, I was writing about Midsummer in my newsletter a couple of weeks ago, and I was describing it as a kind of madness. Like by Midsummer, I feel so kind of driven and obsessive, and like. Mm. urging towards the new and towards growth that I'm quite overwrought and like, and I can't sleep and I can't settle and I'm like fidgety and a bit wired. And in this overlit world, that's all year. That's like, we yes. are literally putting ourselves in that physical state the whole time. And it's aggressive and it's testosterone Yeah. It's and testosterone really, you're right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the reflections are absolutely everywhere. And I really do think the overlit world phrase says so much. It explains so much. There's another little bit of your book. It says, um, it's a time for reflection and recuperation, for slow replenishment, for putting your house in order, preparing for spring. I wonder if you can explain what happens when we don't honor that process and at an individual level. Like if we don't yeah, put our house in order and prepare for spring. What happens? Well, I I address that quite literally in the book because I show how I'd been so busy since my son was born that I hadn't got on top of of my house, you know. And so I I went into the cupboard to bake uh, some bagels and found that the yeast that I was trying to use was like seven years old or something, seven years out of date. It wasn't even seven years old. It was like 10 years old. I mean, that's the thing. If we don't make space for the basics, that everything sort of decomposes around us. You know, there are these subtle things in life that need to be maintained, like, you know, the spaces we live in definitely, but also our relationships and our spiritual sense of the world. Like we need to check in with that, like what we think about that. We need to check in with our moral values. Like that's a really old fashioned concept, but like which way is our compass pointing us and have we thought hard enough about that recently and about how to do good in the world? When we're rushing all the time, we don't get a chance to make those careful, more delicate choices. I was going to say careful. Like yeah. the care word comes up a few times. We want to care. Yeah. And care requires a bit of pottering and fussing. Care is slow. 
care is a slow process. You know, I, I've heard loads of people talk about making quality time with their children over the years. And I, I think that's the opposite of care. Like care is what happens when you make empty space and see what falls into it. You can't predict it. You can't shortcut it. You have to make time and space. Yeah. I write about that in, in one of my books, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, how we don't crave more time because invariably we fill time. We crave more space. Yeah. And care happens in space, not in time. It kind of keys with your environmental message as well. Like I don't feel like I can make good ecological choices when I'm in a hurry because actually all of my work is about maximizing my time, which means that I am therefore resource heavy, like something has to give. When I slow down, I can make wiser, more gentle choices. You know, like I can, I walked here from the train station because I didn't need to hurry. I left enough time to, to do that. I didn't get an Uber, for example. Yeah. <laughs> and I will walk to the theater after I've been to see you. Um, those are a small choices I can make because I don't overpack my days anymore. And yeah. I used to do it very differently. Going gently. I'm wondering what you think of this though. I, I, I sort of see a lot of people use the word self-care. It's not as huge here in the UK, but in America and Australia. I, I, think, I think we're getting it. No, I think we are getting mm. it. Yeah. And everybody's talking self-care, but my feeling is that there's a very indulgent type of self-care happening it leads to a lack of resilience. It's mm. all about cocooning mm. and getting very comfy and cozy and protecting ourselves from the frictions. And I was thinking about this this morning. I'm wondering if, you know, because a lot of wintering is about self-care, but it's about being very realistic and facing yeah. the harshness. Yeah. And whereas I think a lot of the overlit summary healthcare, <laughs> self-care is very summary. It's yeah. it's about not actually doing the pain. Mm. It's about preventing the pain in yeah. the first place. Deferring it. And it's also very surface. It's like, you know, paint your nails and you'll feel better. It's like, do you feel better actually? Mm. And has it actually taken you to a deeper place? Yeah. Whenever I talk about self-care, I'm always really careful to to remind us all that that phrase came from a black activist. Yeah. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. And it was a black female activist and poet. Yeah, indeed. And it was really aimed at how we sustain ourselves through years of activism to go back and do the work. Exactly. And so it was about confronting an emergency actually, and not about white ladies indulging themselves (laughs) But then also it populated itself amongst the disability community and amongst the mental health community who were really using the term self-care to say, I know it's hard, but you need to have a shower every day. Like you need to eat something today. Like self-care was something that was saying, don't harm yourself because of your own executive dysfunction that's coming from the, from Mm. your sickness. And we have appropriated we've, it. We've appropriated it in a real, in a way that actually I find quite offensive because we've then turned it into, yeah, as you say, like, how can we make life more expensive and fluffy? And that's so far away from, from the intention of those words and the deeply restorative basis that they were, they were brought about, but also like the radicalism of them, that actually taking care of ourselves in this world now is two fingers up to like 
everything that tells us that we just must work ourselves to get death and make as much money as we possibly can. And that's the only thing that matters, that we must consume and be in the pattern of behavior that gives us enough money to consume and that that's the only important thing. So yeah, like it's almost like we either need to snatch that word back out of people's mouths. We need to winterize it. We need to, we need to seasonize it in the sense that, all right, do the self care, go into the hibernation mode of winter. And then as spring comes, get back out there and fight for the climate, fight for a more caring world, Mm -hmm. engage, Mm -hmm. take your reflections out to the world. You know, it's like the parable of the monk who comes down from the mountain who's been meditating for three years. Like, what's the point? You've got to come down and. And help and he- to heal the yeah. world. How do you do wintering now so that you're not bludgeoned into it like the first time <laughs> round? I mean, you've yeah. given us a few sort of examples that of how you care for yourself. You allow enough time to walk from the tube station. You do these yeah. rituals, some of these pagan type rituals. But how do you do it at a very granular level? So I think the important thing to say for me is that I learned my self-care when I learned I was autistic. And I like I had to because I'd been through these patterns of just complete collapse throughout the course of my life, like physical and mental, because if you're autistic, like I am in the way that I am, you're able to mask it. And therefore- well, Women in particular- Often, often lots of men actually do. I mean, I think, I think actually, the interesting thing is that we're discovering the men who can mask after we've discovered the women who can mask. Like we, we could accept right. that as a difference, first of all, but now we're realizing it's actually the same as a lot of autistic men too, who've been very invisible because they don't look like autistic men in inverted commas. Yeah. So I realized that I'd hit a junction where I had to start- managing my energies better. And what that meant for me was learning what I specifically needed and to act, to give myself what my body was telling me I needed. And I was very far away from doing that. And that meant acknowledging that actually like a full-time job is not right for me in an office with loads of people. I've, I've tried that so many times across the course of my life and it always leads to illness, like mm. serious physical illness every time. I cannot sustain it. And so I've had to learn to deliberately rest when I'm tired and to, to acknowledge when I'm tired. And so the way I do that is when I'm beginning to feel the edges crumble of my world, like I'll feel very emotional, I'll feel quite grumpy and angry. I've learned that as something that needs to be addressed and not pushed through. And so I will cancel out my whole diary for the next month. It's not a popular thing to do. <laughs> a month, that's radical. Yeah. yeah, like certainly my social calendar for that month, like there will be work events that I need to do, but I will very carefully consider whether I'm, I can do them and whether I must do them. And I'll push everything back for a while. Mm. I will spend some time in the bath because that really helps me personally, it doesn't help everyone. I'll make sure that I'm walking every day. I'll make sure that I'm swimming regularly. Like I'll check in on all the habits that I know are good for me that, that can feel very hard to do when I'm feeling over busy and overwrought. Just generally, I will make space. So it's not about going and getting a manicure. It's like literally about survival. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, I relate. I, I, with my autoimmune disease, I get sensory overload mm. and I actually have to withdraw and I have my entire career is set up so that I can go and lie in a dark room for slabs of time to be then able to go back out again. 
I do relate. Yeah, and you have to do it. There's no, it's not a choice. Like when you tell people you do things like that, who haven't, you know, had to make adaptations like we have, they will often say things like, well, I couldn't do that. And it's like, you've missed the point. Mm. I have to do that. Like, it's not a choice. It's live or die. It really is. It is. I've got another question I just want to ask. It's about sadness. You talk about sadness in the book and about how really a big part of the problem with sadness, the pain we feel, it's the pain of trying to run from it Mm -hmm. and to not sit in the sadness. How should we be doing sadness and how should we do sadness with each other? Yeah, I think we need to make friends with sadness again and to acknowledge it very simply as one of the spectrum of emotions that we're supposed to feel. Genuinely, and I say this as someone who's suffered severe depression and anxiety in my younger years, sadness is actually a safe space. Mm. You can trust sadness if you address it in its purest sense and, and let yourself be sad. The destructive thing is constantly running from it and constantly trying to find ways to push it back and push it down and to neutralize it and to deny it. More than that, when you get acquainted with sadness, it's actually quite a pleasurable space. I know what you mean. Mm. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. There used to be a sort of um, reverence for it. You know, the mel- melancholia mm. was something that people wrote poems about yeah. and yeah. really indulged in a constructive way. I was a very sad child Mm. in the sense that I experienced the sadness of the world. I just was very, very sensitive. I know that that turned into anxiety and depression for me, my teenage years, because of the fact that I spent so much time trying to run from it. Well, and 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 I don't know about you, but I was told very directly on several occasions, you know, children your age can't be this sad. They can't, Mm. you know, girls like you can't be depressed. It was really explicitly forbidden. And actually, it's normal. Children feel sad and that's good. Like children should sometimes feel sad and we can make room for their sadness and hear it and show them how to be in it. And that lets them move through it. We have this cultural fear that we'll get stuck in sadness if we acknowledge it. You just don't. That's just not how sadness works. It's not how any emotion works, actually. You have to pass through it. Yes. And and it's like clouds rolling across the sky. You know, they come over, they rain on you, they move on. We are doing something weird to the clouds when we're like, that's not a cloud. Mm. That's not a cloud. That's the sun. Look at it. That's the sun. I'm sunny. (laughs) And as soon as you try to block something, nature will find a way for it to erupt in another direction i.e. through depression and anxiety. Yeah. Now, you described finishing your book in some beautiful terms, and I just want to read out one last bit. When I started to feel the drag of winter, I began to treat myself like a favoured child with kindness and love. I assumed my needs were reasonable and that my feelings were signals of something important. I kept myself well fed and I made sure I was getting enough sleep. I took myself for walks in the fresh air and spent time doing things that soothed me. I asked myself, what is this winter all about? I asked myself, what change is coming? <laughs> is that really the ultimate boon and gift of wintering is, is the opportunity to ask, well, what is this dark time about? The truth is that the changes will come and they'll come anyway. 
And we spend a lot of time trying to deny them or push them back. And what a wintering often does is it forces us to make those changes. And it does it by breaking everything down about us until we can accept that new thing. Like it so completely deconstructs mm. our, our whole sense of self that we are able to see how possibly we can be this new person. That's not like oh, I'm going to reinvent myself and I'm now going to rule the world. That's like some of these changes are a deterioration and all of us will face deterioration in the long term. Like this is, this is a one-way street ultimately. It's a cyclical one-way street, yeah. but we're all heading in the same direction. And our work is not to defeat those natural forces of like death and illness. It's to learn to live with them and to live well with them. And we can live well with every change, even the really hideous ones. Like we can we can and we should go back out because if nothing else, we can offer solace to the next person that goes through the same thing that we have. That is a beautiful note to finish this discussion on. And thank you so much for your kind, calm, considered way of explaining these complex things. Thank you. It's lovely to talk about it. Thank you. <laughs> I really love that final note that Catherine finishes our chat on. And I also love the invite to ask ourselves, what is this winter about? Whether it be the actual seasonal version or the psychic version, what change is coming in our lives that we are grappling with and need to move through? In Australia, we are in the tail end of winter and rather than long painfully and in resistance for spring, perhaps we can all make the most of what the darker times are about in the comforting knowledge that once passed through and witnessed in reflection, we will cycle onwards. Oh, and of course, come back around again to do it more artfully in 12 months' time. Although, while you're there, I will just remind you that I do continue a lot of these discussions on my Substack newsletter. You can check it out. It's called This Is Precious, and the URL is sarahwilson.substack.com, and I'll put it in the show notes. I hope to see you over there too. Stay wild. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.